Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Heather Randell, where I ask her, are dams cute or not so cute? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this episode, honey, because... I got questions. Welcome to the show, Heather Randell, who is a sociologist and demographer at Penn State University, and she specializes in dam-induced displacement. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. I am so excited to be here and to talk dams today. Me too. And you know, here's the thing. I am like, uh, I... I love myself, obviously, but like, I also realize that like, I'm a little basic sometimes and I was raised in the nineties. And when you were raised in the nineties in America, what I'm realizing in my thirties is, is that most things that we thought were like really cool and fun when we were growing up are deeply problematic. So Olympics, you name it, my dreams keep getting crushed. So here I was on this road trip on my 21st birthday, I was driving to Las Vegas, Drove by the Hoover Dam. The night before had been intense and I was just trying to make it to Vegas in one piece, you know, which we loved. But I saw the Hoover Dam and I was like, what is that? So ever since I've been curious about dams, which leads me to my first question. What is a dam? What is a dam? So a dam, it's really simple. Essentially a structure that blocks a river or a stream to keep water above it. Um, And, you know, we call that area above the dam the reservoir. So when we think about oh, there's a reservoir here, there's a reservoir there. It's a reservoir because there's a dam. Ah, first of all, yes, reservoir. Who knew? Obviously you did because you're a literal scientist, but like, yes, it's that reservoir is up there. And then I would imagine that dams are really difficult because like water uh, erodes stuff. It's also, you know, real powerful, it's real strong, that water. So it's like, why are they built? Why do we want a reservoir? Why do we want to dam up the water? Yeah, so there's a handful of reasons why most dams are built. Um, one of the most relevant ones, especially for new dams being built today, is for hydropower. So generating electricity. Holy shit. Wait, I have a follow-up question about that. I'm a, I really honestly didn't see it coming. I guess somewhere I knew that there was hydropower. How much does that really make, though? Is it enough to like run a whole city, do you think? Or is that just like another question for another podcast? It could. It depends on kind of how big the dam is and how many dams and things like that. So um, the U.S. is um, gets about 7% of our electricity from hydropower. That's um, a lot. It's a lot. It's... You know, it's a lot. It's not a lot compared to some other places like Brazil, which is um, where I study dams, gets about three quarters or more of its electricity from hydropower. So it can actually power a lot. <laughs> um, that's major. What are the other reasons? OK, so um, flood control. So dams are kind of like living creatures. So in, you know, wet season, the river will be higher and flow more. The dry season, it'll be smaller and flow less. And then you can have, you know, extreme rainfall events and have floods. So floods have taken major tolls on, um, on people in, you know, in various times in history. And there've been some catastrophic floods. So another reason to build dams is to prevent these catastrophic floods for communities living downstream. So that's another reason. Is there other reasons? There are a few more. Um, 
So for water supply, so drinking water, for example. Um, so if you think about the desert Southwest, like Las Vegas, like Phoenix, um, dams like the Hoover Dam and the Glen Canyon Dam have actually enabled the growth of those cities by providing water for both drinking as well as for agriculture. So for irrigating farmland. And so that's those are some big reasons why we want to, you know, contain a whole bunch of water in a reservoir. Um, there's also a whole lot of small dams, um, you know, and some of those are used for recreation. So like, oh, cool. Now we have a lake to go boating and go fishing and this and that. Um, and then lastly, which is, you know, less common, but still exists and still can have major implications for people in the environment is, um, dams can be built to hold waste, like, for example, mine waste. So it's essentially like holding back a, a whole bunch of toxic sludge from a mine. So that's, um, another reason. And, but that, but that happens, like it's rare, but those things, they do happen. They do happen. And actually in Brazil in the past, um, five or so years, there have been two, two of those mine waste dams have broken and had catastrophic implications because all the sludge essentially went down the river in a toxic kind of, um, wall of mud, essentially. I think that happened in like the Colorado river or something recently where like a big portion of like the Colorado river, like turned this like crazy color. And it was like, yeah. it had like some like element in it. I have another little teeny tiny follow-up question for, um, flood control dams. Does that like, are levees a type of dam? Levees are not technically a dam. So if I'm correct, a levee is kind of building up the banks of a river. Yeah. Um, so that wouldn't be the same as a dam because it's not it's not stopping the flow of the river. It's just kind of building up the river banks. So when For the river flood. rises, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, I'm obsessed. So how are they built? Like, do you have to like blow up like a rock face or something? Essentially, you know, for smaller dams, which the vast majority of dams in the world are on the smaller side, you're either building it generally from earth, so from soil and, you know, whatever's in the ground or from rocks or from a combination. Um, and I think you would kind of divert the stream or river so that you have a dry area and then you kind of just start piling things up. Um, the bigger dams uh, would be kind of a bit more complicated. So if it, you have a really wide river, you might like um, you know, block off part of it so you can build it and then block off another part. And so you're just kind of um, doing all that fancy engineering. Do we know like when dams first started? So people have been damming rivers to, you know, to have a water supply for thousands of years. And um, these were, you know, these were handmade dams made of earth. Um, the era of mega dams, like when you're talking about the Hoover Dam or um, the, you know, one of the biggest dams in the world, the Three Gorges Dam in China, for example, that didn't start until the early 1900s. So kind of the era of big dams um, is relatively recent. So some of the intended benefits are water supply, flood control, um, hydropower or like, uh, like recreational. If we were doing a pros and cons list, like on dating dams, those are the pros. What are the cons? Oh, like gosh. what's not amazing about them? <laughs> yeah. So there is a whole bunch of cons. Um, so dams 
not surprisingly, change the ecology of the river. And that has, those ecological changes have important implications for both, you know, the natural world as well as for humans. So um, firstly, they affect fish populations and populations of other aquatic animals and plants. Um, one way they do that is by blocking fish migration. Um, so, you know, most fish can't go over a dam. Um, some dams have fish ladders that are supposed to kind of help fish get upriver. Um, I don't know how well they work. Um, and that's been a big issue, particularly um, for some dams in the Western U.S. where um, native, uh, native communities have you know, throughout history have been relying on salmon and salmon need to go upriver to breed. And so dams have taken a toll on salmon populations and affected um, that fishery and, and livelihoods. Um, dams, like I mentioned, um, there's often seasonal changes in the flow of a river. Um, and so dams kind of take away all of that seasonality. And um, in in a lot of the world, people, the 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 area, the land right next to rivers is really fertile and rich because the seasonal flooding kind of brings nutrients to the soil. So it's really important for agriculture. So essentially the dam is stopping that, that pattern of bringing nutrients um, into the soil and it affects floodplain agriculture. Um, dams change water quality. So if you're kind of slowing down the river, the temperature of the water changes, the oxygen level changes, the chemicals in the, you know, the chemical composition changes, and that affects, you know, all the life that lives in the river. Um, in addition, the, the reservoir, so it's kind of like a lake. And so different species are going to thrive in a lake versus a fast flowing river. Um, and so, um, uh, invasive species like certain types of algae or fish can kind of negatively affect the river's native uh, fish and other aquatic species. So those are kind of the ecological effects and those have important implications for people. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, many people throughout the world, their livelihoods depend on on the river for uh, for fishing, for agriculture for drinking for all of these things and so that's affected um many indigenous people throughout you know whether in the u.s or throughout the world have important historical and cultural connections to a river or a waterfall or particular places kind of sacred places or places that have important cultural meaning or meaning for their livelihoods and when that place is now under a big reservoir, um, it, you know, can have implications for, um, for cultural traditions as well as well-being. So let's just frame that up for a little bit, because I think this is one area of like dams writ large that I really never understood. So it sounds like there's a lot of dams in Brazil. Sounds like there's a lot in the U.S., I know there's like some in the Mississippi because there's some by where I'm from, plus there's some in like the Western U.S. Um, where also there are a lot of dams. There's there's a lot of dams like everywhere that there are rivers, essentially. Um, so, you know, all over the world, essentially, you know, everywhere that you can dam a river, not everywhere, but many places um, there are dams. So, for example, um, China has about 98,000 dams. The U.S., we have over 90,000 dams that are at least six feet tall. 
Um, a lot of those are on the smaller side, but um, there's about 4,600 large dams. So when we think about kind of dams that are flooding a big area, dams that are tall, made of concrete, um, almost 5,000 of them in the U.S. Um, so there's lots and lots and lots of dams, um, you know, ranging from just a few feet to 300 feet tall. So when you have like traditions that are passed down like this for such a long time, and then whether it's from like a colonizing force or like a governmental force, even if it's like from within your own government or like from somewhere else, this is like really huge cultural, like generational trauma, differences, invasion. Like it just, I just wouldn't have ever thought that dams would have created so much, um, like hurt and pain for like different communities that were like living there for such a long time, like that they would be such like a life interrupter. Aside from the fact of people whose ancestors have lived for thousands of years in a place, even if you grow up in a place, um, you know, you have think about memories you have from like where you lived when you were a kid. People have really important attachment to to land and place and space and home. Um, and so relatedly, you know, one of one of the main things I study related to dams is displacement. And so um, that is literally, you know, when um, people are in the way of a dam and they are removed from their home. So there is, you know, the loss not necessarily, you know, the displacement of people, but the loss of, of places that have important cultural, personal um, meaning to peoples, to communities. And then there's the actual displacement of people themselves. So because a lot of dams were built in the early 1900s or like throughout the 1900s, um, we obviously didn't have the same understanding of like climate change when a lot of these dams were first constructed. And so that makes me think of how does climate change interact with some of these mega dams? Like, and like, what about like a dam failure? Yeah. So in two, two kind of broadly important ways. So firstly, you know, dams, especially, uh, more recent dams and dams that are um, built for hydropower are kind of framed as this is a important source of renewable energy. You know, climate change is, is, uh, you know, a big issue and we need more energy. And so if we dam rivers, we can generate energy without relying on fossil fuels. So it's kind of framed as an, as a way to get more energy, um, in a, renewable or more sustainable way. But in fact, dams actually can contribute to climate change in a few different ways. So first of all, you know, oftentimes um, if you're going to build a new dam, you have to cut down lots of trees to get to the area, to build roads, to do this and that. And we know that deforestation, you're removing, you know, trees contain carbon. Um, they are a sink for carbon dioxide. And so when you're cutting down trees, you have fewer of them to kind of take in the CO2. Um, also, reservoirs actually can release carbon dioxide and methane, which is a much stronger greenhouse gas. Um, so like when you when you dam up a river, um, any sort of decaying like plant matter or biological matter in the water um, as it decays, releases gases like CO2 and methane. So that's, you know contributing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And actually about 10% of the world's hydropower dams have greenhouse gas emissions like per unit 
of energy they generate that's as high as fossil fuel power plants. And some of them are even higher. So, you know, not all dams, but in certain environments, dams can actually release a lot of greenhouse gases. So that's one end of the spectrum. So dams themselves, despite being framed as, you know, a wonderful renewable source of energy, not dependent on fossil fuels can actually contribute to climate change. On the other end of the spectrum is, okay, how does climate change affect dams? And what is what does that mean for people and for the ecosystem? So for the purposes of hydropower generation and for water um, storage and for drinking water irrigation, you need water in the reservoir to go through the turbines or to just be there to like go provide water to cities. And so... We know with climate change that we're having more severe droughts in certain parts of the country and certain parts of the world. And so if you have less water in those reservoirs, that affects the ability for the dams to do what they were built to do. So, for example, um, you mentioned the Hoover Dam. So the Hoover Dam created Lake Mead, which supplies water to Arizona, Nevada, California, and northern Mexico. Um, So that's drinking water. It provides irrigation water for about a million acres of farmland. And it provides hydropower that powers about half a million homes. Okay, so that's like, you know, really helped enable the growth of those areas and the economies of those areas. And so the last time that Lake Mead was full was in 1983. That's Mm. the year I was born. I'm 38. Like that was a long time ago. So that was the last time the reservoir was actually full. And so we're currently, the whole southwestern U.S. is currently in this a mega drought. So it's been about 20 years of a drought. And so that's massively diminished the, the water levels in, um, in Lake Mead, also in Lake Powell. So that's um, in, on the Colorado River as well. Um, and August 2021, uh, the U.S. government declared a water shortage on the Colorado River. And so that declaration instituted cuts to water usage and um, kind of the first group affected by those cuts are going to be farmers in Arizona that that rely on the um, the water from Lake Mead to irrigate their crops and then kind of more cuts are coming Um, and if Lake Mead is currently as of like today the water level is at 1,068 feet. If it drops below 1,050 feet, uh, it won't generate energy anymore. Like there's not enough water to go through those turbines. So this is one clear implication of climate change. So we're seeing, you know, and we we know that particularly the Southwest as well as other areas in the world are going to be experiencing more severe droughts. And so if there's not water in the reservoirs, you can't do as much um, to you know, fulfill their purpose. In your research, has is there any other um, mega dam that has such a precarious point in its functioning as Hoover Dam and like Lake Mead? Like, is there, or is there anywhere else that's in that neighborhood? I think Lake Powell is also in um, pretty, I mean, they're in the same general vicinity. Um, but that's in, two in different that- dams that control them? Yeah, yeah. So the Glen Canyon Dam um, is what uh, fills or, you know, uh, is in front of or behind Lake Powell and then Hoover Dam, Lake Mead. Um, And so they're, you know, both in the desert southwest. So they're in in very low levels. Are we seeing this in like 
China, like Brazil, anywhere else? Like, yeah. So Brazil um, also currently right now is um, in a major drought, um, and a number of their reservoirs have also fallen to their lowest levels in like all the ninety-one years of record keeping that Brazil has been monitoring these reservoirs. And so the federal government is actually asking Brazilians to cut their energy uses, and it's raising energy prices. So you know, if you think about the cost of electricity going up, who's most impacted by that? Poorer people that, you know, the, the a greater proportion of their income, they're spending on basic needs like food and electricity and things like that. So, um, so Brazil as well is in a major drought that's affecting their ability to generate hydropower. And like I mentioned, Brazil gets the vast majority of their electricity from hydropower. So that's a big deal for them. Um, despite that, Brazil has um, like nine new hydropower dams that it's planning to construct this decade in the 2020s. So again, there's this idea of, you know, we know that climate change is affecting um, precipitation patterns, but we're kind of charging on with um, with building, you know, quote unquote, renewable energy as if, you know, it's still going to be functioning the way, you know, it used to. I was just going to ask, like, I'm sure that there is, you know, a lot of people who have made a lot of money from building dams and there's probably like generational wealth and those means of building dams and like a whole industry that is wanting to build them because that's their livelihoods and everything. What's the story with them trying to be more green or environmentally responsible or is there like a push within the dam industry to try to make them more like desirable or like deal with these issues? I don't know the answer to that. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that there is a good answer. Um, I don't know that, you know, building a mega dam is ever green. Um, but I know that, um, there's in the U S we have a whole bunch of kind of smaller dams that were built like during the era of like mills, you know, like you think of new England and those old like industries from the 18 early 1900s. And so we have a whole bunch of dams that are like sitting there, um, not being used. And there's a push among some to, um, to kind of start using them to generate like smaller amounts of hydropower. Um, and I don't know enough about that kind of discussion to know what people feel about it. But yeah, I don't I don't know that there is a way to build a gigantic dam, you know, in a way that doesn't have these effects. So would like would Vegas and like Henderson, could they have ever grown to what they are now in absence of those dams? Yeah, my guess is not. I mean, you know, water is such a basic need and, you know, it's a desert. So, um, you know, having that water supply certainly helped the cities grow and they're continuing to grow. Um, you know, I was in Vegas earlier this summer because my father-in-law lives there and you just see kind of new housing development after new housing development, but they're going to be affected by these water restrictions as well. So it's, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Yeah, I was reading this thing about California water rights and how like their water rights were like made in the 1800s and 1900s and how essentially it's like a first come first serve thing. So like the farmers that were there first, like that have like these farms are like fifth and sixth generation, they won't really be affected, but all the people that were there later will be. And in a lot of times that's people that are like low income, like more marginalized groups anyway. And so it does seem like these water shortages are going to have very like political, um, 
like social, political, financial um, issues. And so it's like, that is so scary. Like, so what do people in Vegas do? I mean, do you see a world where this like becomes like untenable and like there just isn't water there and they eventually like do become displaced and have to find a different place to live? I don't know. That's a good question. And I think we're still a ways out from that. But I mean, I think about that all the time in terms of, you know, what we know, what is already happening with climate change between droughts and floods and fires and things like that. And, you know, it's affecting different, you know, just focusing on the U.S., it's affecting different parts of the country differently. Um, And so, I mean, it's a good question. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Like humans are pretty resilient. Humans are pretty good at figuring out ways to adapt. But, you know, there's going to be people who who certainly lose out. And, you know, like you mentioned, the effects are never felt equally. So it's, you know, going to be, you know, in many cases, you know, lower income or people from marginalized populations that are most adversely affected first. It seems like there is the people who are displaced by the building of the dam itself in the first place. Has there ever been like a post-apocalyptic like Vegas of sorts, like somewhere in the world where like the dam just dried up and they had to leave anyway and then they displaced like two gigantic sets of people? I haven't heard of that happening yet. <laughs> Luckily, um, it, yeah. So, but it, you know, it, it it could be in the cards for you know decades in the future. I don't know. It's a good question. Um, but the people who are displaced by dams are literally anyone who you know is living where the reservoir is going to be, where the transmission line is going to be, where anything related to the infrastructure of the dam or where it's flooding is going to be. Um, And, you know, around the world, like in the 20th century, it's estimated that between 40 to 80 million people have been displaced by dams. Um, So it's it's affected a lot of people. 40 to 80 million people? I didn't see it coming. In the 20th century, yeah. So just kind of the, the big... The biggest dam in terms of displacement and the biggest dam in terms of hydropower generation is the Three Gorges Dam in China. Um, so that dam displaced 1.2 million people, just that one dam. How? Um, by flooding a whole bunch of area. Um, oh. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than what a lot of other dams um do in terms of displacement, but it adds up when you have so many dams, um, you know, you're affecting a lot of people. And so, you know, it's anyone who's living in those areas. And oftentimes it's rural populations, it's people with less political power, people from more marginalized groups that are forced to leave um, because the dam is going to flood their home, their farmland, their livelihood, their, you know, historical, um, the place where their families may have lived for generations. Where do people go once they've been displaced? So it ranges um, based on kind of the, you know, the pro- whoever's building the dam, like, what are they going to do? Um, and I think, you know, it's changed historically in terms of what dam builders do and what they have to do. And so, um, so in kind of the more recent era where you can't just not do it, you can't just displace people and not do anything for them. Like, that's not cool. Um, you can either build new homes for people, like you build, you know, build a new village, resettle people in a city, um, provide new homes for them. So that's one option. Um, 
and or you can give them money so you can you know pay them for their losses or the losses of their home and their land and etc and enable them to go buy a new house or land somewhere else um so those are the main um the main ways that people are relocated and then i mean and obviously what are the effects i i mean i, I yeah, what are the effects of displaced people's health and well-being like from being displaced? I mean, I would imagine it takes generations to recover from this. Yeah, so or it can in, in most studies of um, dam-induced displacement, you might, as you might expect, uh, things are generally negative. So people, you know, they they people lose their land, they lose their livelihoods, they lose their social connections. You know, you think about um, your close friends or family or neighbors, and especially if you're living in a, you know, a rural area somewhere that you rely on day to day, um, losing their housing, all of these things, um, losing, you know, their, the schools that they, their kids went to. So, um, so there's a lot of kind of an array of, of potential negative impacts on, um, on people who are displaced by dam, falling into poverty, um, losing jobs, losing homes, losing healthcare, losing those really important social ties, things like that. Um, but it doesn't always have to be like that. Um, so there are cases where, um, where, you know, people have done okay. And actually the, the dam that I studied, um, in Brazil, um, I kind of went into it thinking that it would be bad for the rural farmers that I, that I worked with. And a lot of them actually kind of in the year or two after being displaced were, were doing pretty okay. Um, and it really surprised me. Um, and, and I think partly that had to do with the fact that because Brazil builds so many dams and because, you know, they've, it historically been very bad for the people that um, have been affected. Brazil, you know, it kind of the, the dam building company was kind of forced to invest a lot of money in um, their in their displacement or resettlement program. So um, so the the money that people were paid to move ended up being enough for a lot of people to like buy an OK farm, you know, in another area and maybe even buy a form of transportation or, you know, things like that. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to lead to all these terrible um, negative outcomes, but in many cases it does. So earlier you were mentioning that there are certain DMs in certain climates that can actually make equal emissions of greenhouse gases as like their fossil fuel counterparts. Do you have any statistics or info on like what that percentage is like of the functioning dams in like the US or Brazil? Like like 80 of them are less greenhouse emission creating, but 20 of them are actually the same or is it worse or do you know that? Yeah, so there's a paper on it um, that would probably have all of that information. Um, I just remember from the paper that it's about 10% of dams, hydropower dams in the world, you know, are kind of releasing as much greenhouse gases. Um, and 90% are doing less? Yeah, um, so so that's good news, but it really varies also in terms of kind of wh what kind of environment the dam is in. So like in more like tropical lowland areas, um, that's more likely to generate higher amounts of greenhouse gases, mm. for example. 
So, but in your opinion, as it's, you're a literal scientist, is that like there's probably not a way to do them safely. But then there's this big economy of dam builders who are like, we can still sell a story that makes it seem like it's totally. greener and better. Totally. And and that's how it's framed generally. And I think a lot of, you know, people buy that framing because, you know, if you have to say, well, should we do hydropower? Should we do fossil fuels? You know, it's hard to argue for fossil fuels, but of course, those are not our only two choices. You know, we can we can do much better. So for like so for you, is it like what about wind or like yeah. what? I mean, that's the answer, you know, and there's no perfect way to generate energy. Solar. There's no, yeah, there's no, there's no form of energy generation that has no negative ecological impacts like solar. You know, you need to mine the things that go in the solar panel and, and when. But it's like, what's the least yeah. harmful? Cause it's like right. all about a harm reduction model. Right. So like, I think it's hard to argue that hydropower is better than wind or solar or tidal power, things like that. So there's, certainly alternatives because you're just affecting less resources less people less plants and it's just like a less butterfly effect on like the resources and like damming an entire moving body of like literal huge gigantic water that has so many forces of like sediment and erosion and like gravity and like all these other things i probably don't even know about how they interact with like moving bodies of water exactly i mean it's like a, a river is you know such a such a complex ecosystem and you're just literally like stopping it in its tracks. Isn't providing water as a resource for the the people around the dam, couldn't that have like downstream potential for like limiting water access for other people that would have had access to water, but now they don't because you dammed up something? Oh yeah, that's a big issue. Um, And for example, there's a dam that's, um, maybe it's almost done in Ethiopia called the... um, uh, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Um, and so it's damming the Blue Nile River, which runs and connects with the White Nile and forms the Nile. And so it runs from Ethiopia to Sudan to Egypt. And it has been a major kind of cross-country um, conflict over the potential loss of water for the downstream countries, Sudan and Egypt, when Ethiopia dams up that river and keeps a massive amount of the water behind that dam. And so it's, it's a big issue. So the, you know, the, the provision of water to whoever's building that dam, in this case, Ethiopia, um, is leading to the loss of water for whoever lives downstream. And in this case, it's two other countries that also need that water. So what's going to happen? I think it's just, it's going forward. I, yeah, I haven't paid super close attention lately, but it's been a years long battle. But I think it's, um, I mean, it's like almost done, if not done. How do you protect people from flooding and limited water access? <laughs> Is it just like not building dams anymore? I mean, I think most dams that are built now are for hydropower. So they're not generally being built for flood control or or water supply as much. Um, So the question is, you know, less about, I mean, yeah, it's less about that. Like we're not, you know, oh, there's more flooding because of climate change. Let's build a dam. That's not, I don't think happening as much. It's more like, you know, okay, climate change is happening and there's this boom in dam building because so many countries are developing economically and see it as a a way to generate more energy renewably. Well, you know, there's got to be a better way to do that because, you know, there's 
so many of these implications that we've been talking about for both the, the ecosystem and for humans, um, you know, related to, to dam building. And how are we going to protect people from dam-induced displacement? Is there anyone leading efforts to, like, help those people? Yeah, so there's... Um, I'm, I mostly know the Brazilian context because Brazil oh, was where I study, but also Brazil has done a whole, I mean, they've built, been building dams for a long time and lots of people have been displaced. And so there's, um, you know, for decades, there's been kind of an anti-dam movement, social movement organizations in Brazil. So um, one of them is called um, the Movimento dos Atingidos dos Barragens. So, like, um, it's called MABI, and it's a, grown into a, um, a national organization that helps people affected by dams, and they have partnerships internationally. Um, there's, um, there's, there's not much dam building in the U.S. anymore. Um, so, essentially, almost all of the dam building is happening elsewhere in the world, primarily in low and middle income countries. Um, but there's organizations like International Rivers, um, an NGO that um, that works, you know, much beyond dam building, but um, related to rivers and protecting people who depend on rivers for their lives and livelihoods. Well, if there's anyone listening to this episode that's really into that, we'll make sure to include the link to that Brazilian organization that you're just talking about and International Rivers if people want to do more research on it. I have one more question about back to, um, I think it was like Mead. So you said it was like at 1,068. And if it gets Mm -hmm. to 1,050, it won't be at a place to like generate like water anymore. Mm -hmm. I wonder what like the level of water loss, like is that projected? Like if it keeps going, like it's been, is that like in six months or does it take like three years to lose a foot of water? Like good question. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's a good question, but I know that kind of the lower it gets. So if you think of a Canyon like this, the lower it gets, the quicker it goes down because it's like a V almost or like a, a wine glass or something or a champagne flute. Um, Right. So, yeah, so the lower it gets, the quicker it gets continuously lower. That's fascinating. And then now I want to talk about you a little bit. So what drew you to this field and what's your career journey? Like, is this, do you stay studying this for EVs? Like, what drew you to this? What's next for you? Tell me everything. Yeah, so... um so I discovered dams. Um, my senior year of college, I took this class. It was like this small class where we worked with the professor to write a paper to like an academic paper to publish, like every, you know, everyone in the class. And the topic which he picked each year was on kind of ecological change and um, human diseases. And so I got assigned a disease that I was going to you know contribute to the paper, and it was schistosomiasis, which. Probably you haven't heard of, maybe you have. Yeah, so it's um, actually, it's a parasitic disease that affects um, low and mostly tropical countries. Um, the biggest effects are in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and it's this like fluke worm parasite thing that completes part of its life cycle in a snail that lives in the water, so an aquatic snail. And then... It like goes out of the snail and swims around the water. Then when people go in the water, it like burrows in your skin and that's how it gets into people. And it um, is, it mostly doesn't kill people, but it can lead to, to morbidity, illness. And it's a major source of illness in places where schistosomiasis is endemic. And so I found in researching this tropical disease that when you build a dam, it can actually lead to, um, much higher levels of schistosomiasis in the people living around the dam because it changes 
the water flow, it changes the ecosystem. So like the snails can proliferate more and they're like these prawns that feed on them can't live in the area where the snails are. That's, you know, one example. And so I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Dams can have major health effects for the people living around them. Then I like tabled that idea for a few years and went and got a master's. And then when I was starting my PhD in sociology, I um, decided that I wanted to kind of come back to to dams and it's the social and health effects of dams. And my advisor um, was like, oh, well, they're building this giant dam, like right where I've done research for 15 years in Brazil. So like, why don't you go check that out? And that kind of started my journey of um, studying the Belamonte Dam, which is um, was built in um, in the Brazilian Amazon. And so, um, so I spent a few years studying um, the displacement of rural farmers. So I um, interviewed and surveyed them before they were displaced, and then I tracked them um, and found them after they were displaced, or most of them, and you know. Uh, re-interviewed and surveyed them to see how they were doing and where they moved and how they made decisions on where to move and um, and all of those things. Um, so that's what I did for my PhD. And then I pivoted more to climate change work um, for, and I've mostly been focusing on um, looking at the health and social impacts of climate change um, in, in the, in mostly in East Africa and other countries in the tropics. Um, but I have some new work on dams. I'm kind of coming full circle back to dams. So I'm um, planning a new project that hopefully will will get funded. So the Belamanchi Dam, which I studied, it's the fourth largest dam in the world, um, a hydropower dam in the world, I should say, in the amount of energy that it has the capacity to generate, not that it does generate, which is an important um Side note, because, you know, you you justify the cost of this tens of billions of dollars dam by saying it's going to generate so much energy for Brazil, like it's going to power so many households and so much industry. And then it turns out that, you know, usually it doesn't actually generate that much energy because if the water flow, if there's not enough water flow, it can't generate the full amount of energy Um and so that's that's a side note. Um, but Belamanchi displaced, it's estimated 20 to 40,000 people there. there um, and so quite a few. And most of them were actually in, in a city upstream called Altamira. And so um, I'm hoping to interview women um, moms who were displaced in the city um, to kind of see how it affected them and their kids and um, and their kind of health and well-being. Has there been a lot of like, do you see like modern displacement of like indigenous peoples in Brazil from these dams too? Yeah. So, um, so it is an issue and there's a lot of protests in Brazil, um, by indigenous groups and for indigenous groups related to, um, dam induced displacement. So the dam, the Belamanchi dam was originally proposed in 1975. They were like, this is an awesome part of the river for a dam. It's like like literally a dam engineer said, God made this part of the river for a dam. It's like perfect. <laughs> and so this, you know, it was originally a set of multiple dams that would flood thousands of acres of including indigenous land. And there was so much protest over it that it kind of got tabled for multiple decades. And there was um, 
a lot of press and a lot of indigenous groups protested. And so then they kind of redesigned the dam. Now it's only kind of one dam complex. Um, but still there was major protest and a lot of it centered around indigenous people. So it wasn't, it no longer has displaced any indigenous people, but, um, it has affected both directly and indirectly the livelihoods and well-being of indigenous groups. So there's an, so the river is shaped kind of like, it's like a bend in the river. It's like a big U that, so say it flows like from one end of the U to the other. And so they dammed, it's a kind of two dams. So they dammed here um, one part of the U to divert water into like a newly created reservoir to power the major dam that's generating most of the energy. So there's a whole swath of the the bottom of the U kind of in between those two dams that is getting less water. Mm-hmm. And so there's actually two indigenous groups that live near that bottom of the U. And um, the water levels, in order to generate kind of enough electricity, they've had to cut off so much water from the bottom of that U that like fish have been dying in mass. Um, It's hard, you know, if you navigate the river on a boat to get places, it's hard to get around. So there's like so many other ways in addition to displacement that's um, that indigenous people are affected um, by dam building in Brazil. And that's, you know, just one example. And I would also imagine that like, who's to say that like there aren't people from those groups that don't leave and don't become displaced and then maybe just like don't ever talk to a scientist about it to like relay their story even. Um, So that's fascinating. Your work is fascinating. And then if someone was also obsessed with this and like your uh, scholarship, what would you tell them to like major in in college? Um, I think, you know, you there could never be enough uh, people majoring in environmental studies. I mean, I'm a little biased um, towards you know, the environmental social scientists. I think we need more people who are thinking kind of sociologically about um, about environmental change, its causes, its consequences, how power dynamics, you know, lead to these effects and who is affected, how kind of historical legacies of colonialism and general inequality um, have kind of got us to where we are today and what can we do about it? Ah, yes. I mean, well, no, but yes. You know what I'm saying? Is there anything else that you would just be remiss if you didn't share? Like, the floor is yours. Like, do we miss anything about, like, DM 101 that you're like, girl, how do you not ask me about this? Or something? Uh, I Yeah, I have, a f- like, one more thing related to climate change that I think is relevant that I forgot to talk about. And so I mostly talked about droughts, but I think you mentioned, like, oh, has there ever been a dam that, like, broken, you know, because of rain. And, um, and in the U S so one example, not necessarily of breaking, but, um, in California, there's the Oroville dam. And in 2017, there was, they were worried after heavy rainfall that it was going to literally break. And so they evacuated 180,000 people living downstream, um, for fear that it would like a wall of water was going to come wash them out. Luckily, it didn't end up breaking that time. But, you know, as, as we see, I know things are happening like that in China, like heavy rainfall is really kind of challenging the current dams that were not built to withstand heavy rainfall like that. So, um, have they reinforced that Oroville one since? I remember I, that. Yeah. I hope so. I haven't, uh, 
uh, I haven't followed up on it, but um, I would, yeah, I would hope that they've made whatever repairs need to be made. But, you know, um, but I think so we're, you know, in terms of extremes, I mean, that's kind of the name of the game with climate is extremes. And so we're seeing extremes of drought and extremes of heavy rainfall and dams were not built with those in mind, you know, especially a lot of the dams in the U.S. that were built in the early 1900s. The period of most dam building was the 1960s. Like, we weren't talking about climate change then. I mean, they were still telling pregnant ladies to smoke. Yeah, right? There was a lot of not cool stuff in the 60s. Not to mention that it occurs to me that the larger area that you're damming, like, the larger the dam, the like the higher you go up, the farther you have to fall. Like the more of like energy that you're trying to harness or manipulate or whatever, I feel like the more can go wrong because you're like impacting more people. Mm-hmm. And we've had such huge ones built all over the place. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, I And I just thought of something really important because I think we're just talking about the bad stuff. So in the U.S., like I mentioned, so there's this like dam building boom globally but in the u.s we're like not really building much these days in terms of dams but what we are doing is removing dams and um there's a whole lot of dams that are just kind of sitting there and that are either in like poor states of you know infrastructure like they're they have damage that would be expensive to repair they're not like doing the job that they were built for like like uh you know powering these old mills in New England, all of these things. So um, so dams are being taken down. And um, there have been some dam removals, um, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, of dams that um, really decimated salmon populations. And um, the Elwha River dams in, in Washington, and there's um, a set of dams on the Klamath River in Northern California um, that are going to be removed in the next coming year, a couple of years, um, that are really important for a, f- a few tribes, the, the Yurok, the Kurok in, in Northern California. And, um, and dam removal has been really effective in restoring ecosystems and bringing the salmon back in, you know, kind of re, revitalizing what used to be kind of this, you know, this system. Um, it's almost like the end of Moana. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So there's, you know, it's like, while much of the the world, unfortunately, is just putting up new dams, like there are dams being removed in the U.S. And an organization that does a lot of work with dam removal and does fantastic work is American Rivers, um, an NGO. I have, uh, I shared in one of my links, I have a, a video of theirs about the Klamath River dams. It's a fantastic, like short film um and so there is reason to hope you know like it's possible dams don't have to be forever tula yes <laughs> have you seen moana no oh <laughs> my I god a, can i just I tell a you three-year-old i really probably should <laughs> all my friends are so obsessed with it and i got obsessed with the soundtrack but then i never actually watched all of it until i was just on the plane on the way home from the uk and it is so amazing oh, i man cried so hard because you know what it is finally like disney made a story where like the like it's a female hero and she doesn't need love like she there's no love interest they're doing that now yeah i I think she was the first because i think that this was like pre frozen yeah and it's just so cool because like she is just like she is a badass water 
fucking navigator. So oh, you'd love awesome. her. I feel I like will. you'll be obsessed with Moana. You and your baby should watch it. I will sit down with my, with my three-year-old and watch and then it, when for it, sure. And then when you see the part when they're like, Tula, you'll be like, oh, that's what he was. Cool. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> I'm going home to my Disney Plus. <laughs> yes. Um, I had so much fun in this episode. I hope you did. It was just like such a yeah. pleasure to meet you. Everyone, give it up for Heather Randell. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was so awesome. And I was really glad to be able to talk about all this stuff. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Heather Randell. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And thank you for you for still subscribing to my podcast, even though sometimes I sing through the credits and I'm not even a good singer. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And if you do that, maybe I won't sing through the credits unless you're into that sort of thing. And then I'll keep singing the credits. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bostic. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bostic. <laughs>